Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The number one question I've gotten over the last four months has been, what about election integrity? What happened? And why is everyone on the left trying to intimidate us from talking about this really important subject? And they are. If you look at the mainstream media, this is an issue that they are just sweeping under the rug. They are continuing to use those little modifiers of saying that Trump, quote unquote, falsely claimed or repeatedly falsely claimed. All of these things that they are trying to perpetuate this myth and this narrative that the 2020 election was completely fine and we as conservatives and Republicans just need to move on. But we need to be talking about this. This is absolutely the number one issue that is facing conservatives moving forward. And in order to answer the question about election integrity, answer the question of what do we do about this now, what do we do moving forward? Uh, what happened? Why did it happen? We have to go back to the purpose and the design of our government and of the U.S. Constitution. Because if you look at the shaping of the narrative and all of the rhetoric that came out from the left and even some of the rhinos that said that, uh, you know, election integrity is all about suppressing the vote and, you know, all of these misnomers. What they're trying to do is to reinvent the truth of the U.S. Constitution. And they're trying to repurpose the design of government and to sell you a lie that big government is good, that Congress somehow through H.R. 1 actually has the legal and constitutional authority to design legislation that uh, is taking control from the states over elections. And all of these other things that as policy issues, of course, we can talk about and we should be debating these things. But we have to go back more fundamentally than that to talking about the purpose of our government and the design of the Constitution. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So we call this a system of government. 
And that term system is really important. So my dad and my brother are both literally rocket scientists. Um, yeah, we, we even have, we gave them that t-shirt that, that says, actually, I am a rocket scientist. Uh, because they design and work on uh, satellites. They work on rockets. They work on all kinds of things uh, in space stuff that's really, really cool. Um, but it's a system. And so when you look at the functionality, you look at the operation, you look at the design of what they do in building satellites for a mission-oriented purpose. That type of a system is the exact same design and really the, the complexity of what our Constitution was originally intended for and what it's still intended for. It's a system of government that has a mission-oriented purpose, and that purpose is articulated specifically in our Declaration of Independence, that acknowledges the truth of reality, which was, by the way, the first time in world history that a government uh, was designed and predicated on recognizing truth, that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government, and the sole purpose of government, that design, the mission-oriented goal, is to preserve and protect our unalienable rights that are God-given. And so when our founders in the Declaration of Independence acknowledged that truth and they put in that amazing worldview statement that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And what, what are those truths that they recognized? Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator, not their government, with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they went on to recognize and declare foundationally that the purpose of government is to preserve and protect our rights. And so then when they got to um, first the Articles of Confederation and then ultimately our Constitutional Convention, that the object and the mission, the goal of the Constitutional Convention was to design a system that would fulfill that mission, that would reach that goal. And what they came up with was not perfect, but it was the best effort, and it's been the best effort, and we've seen the most liberty, freedom, prosperity, and preservation of our unalienable rights in this system that was designed for a specific purpose, which is to preserve and protect our rights. So if you look at our system of government, if you look at the the mode of our government, which is our U.S. Constitution, that is the framework, that is our supreme law. We are a nation under the rule of law, not a nation of rulers. We don't have a king. We don't have an oligarchy. We don't have a collaboration of petty dictators like what you would think looking at the state governors uh, in our current era, um, if you look at what Congress thinks it has the power to do. No, our system of government is a design of the U.S. Constitution that is specifically intended to be the best way to preserve and protect our individual liberties and freedoms. And so our founders at the Constitutional Convention hotly debated and contested what should we do with this? They had seen other systems of government fail throughout world history. They knew their world history. They, uh, they also saw how uh, the system in England had so infringed upon 
uh, their foundational, most sacred rights. The, these weren't just petty little grievances. Um, I mean, we all, you know, don't like to have traffic tickets, but um, but we know that that's, you know, kind of a, an understandable, semi-petty thing that we have to deal with. But no, these were much, much worse infringements upon liberty and freedom and things that are God-given. And so when they looked at this design, they said, okay, what is the purpose of government? And we have this kind of uh, tension here between empowering government enough to be able to protect the individual citizens that are part of this government, but we have to limit that power so that the individuals still have the ability to freely exercise our rights and have liberty. So there's this inherent tension that's built into government because you have to, as James Madison said in the Federalist Papers, you have to first give government the power, but then obligate it to limit its own power. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. But that's the inherent tension. And so when we look at the design of government and when we look at why our Constitution starts out with we the people, we have a design and a mission-oriented purpose of government that says we are not going to infringe upon these freedoms and liberties and we are going to have the principle of limited government and we are also going to self-govern. So when we have this design that our founders uh, created at the Constitutional Convention, they separated the powers of government so that we don't have just one tyrant. And they split these on the federal level. And we, of course, know these, the legislative branch that, that can only create law. Limited, though, that's limited. And we have the executive, which is to enforce the law. And then we have the judicial branch, which doesn't have any inherent power. It can't legislate. It can't execute. But what it can do is hold those two political branches accountable to make sure they stay within their limited power. So that's on the federal level. But then we also have vertically a separation of powers. And that's what nobody really talks about is this vertical separation that's called federalism. This separation between a very, very limited federal government, then we have states that are supposed to have state sovereignty within our union of the United States, and then the powers that are not expressly given to the state or the federal level are supposed to be reserved to we the people. And we the people actually have powers of self-government. Nobody talks about that today, right? But we have all of these ways that we can exercise not just our rights, but our own power of self-government in order to pursue happiness, pursue uh, our faith, and exercise these rights in uh, in the public square, in our businesses, in our parenting, in um, in our communities, and in our daily lives. So when we look at the design of the Constitution, when we analyze something like election integrity or any issue, any policy issue or any moral issue or anything that our current civil society wants to accomplish, we have to first analyze that according to our mission, which is still and always should be to preserve and protect our fundamental God-given unalienable rights. But then we also have to see within this design, can the government exercise that power? And if so, which particular agency of government? Because election integrity, for example, uh, what was so clear to those of us who were on uh, the Trump 2020 legal team 
uh, in this post-election integrity effort, what became so clear to us was that the state legislatures and, and also the federal government, Congress right now looking at H.R. 1, has absolutely no idea the distribution of powers of government. That becomes key because when we went in front of the state legislatures and reminded them that the U.S. Constitution, which is still our supreme law of the land, we are all under a rule of law, this is the delegation and the separation of powers in our Constitution. And of course, you know, we can talk about amending all of those things. And we, the people, because we're self-governing, we can amend and redistribute those powers if we want to. But we have to go through a certain particular legal process. Congress can't do that unilaterally. The president can't do that unilaterally by executive order or anything else. Governors can't do that unilaterally. You have to go by the design and the process. And the reason for that is to make sure that we we don't end up in a dictatorship or an oligarchy. So when we were talking as a team to these state legislators, it became super apparent that they had absolutely no idea that the U.S. Constitution actually delegates expressly and only to the state legislatures in Article 2, Section 1.2. You can go and look this up yourself, uh, that the state legislatures are the only authority that can select the manner in which electoral college delegates are actually sent to Washington. So the reason for this, um, of course, and you know, again, when we talk about the system, the design, the intent, the ability to get to this mission-oriented goal, the reason for this is that our founders understood that the states were supposed to have sovereignty, a lot, lot more of the government powers were supposed to be the states and then also to the individual citizens of those states. Our national federal government was supposed to be the most limited. And in 2021, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing if you look at how we have over the past hundred years gotten so away from that because we see that our national federal government is where everybody's concentration is focused on. Um, everyone is saying, you know, why doesn't Congress do X? Well, first we have to say, well, can Congress do X? Why should our federal government be uh, concerning themselves with what is generally speaking, I mean, 99% of the time is a state and local issue. But we believe the narrative of the mainstream media. We see that generally speaking, you know, congressmen and women are uh, the celebrity politicians. Everything that happens in Washington is the most critical. Well, if you actually look at the design of the Constitution, um, there's actually a provision in Article 1, which talks about the composition of Congress, that expressly says that Congress has to meet once a year. Like, that's a requirement in the Constitution. And the reason for that is because the founders said, well, they may not have anything to do for the year, but we at least need to make sure that they convene just for the purpose in case they need to do something. I mean, can you imagine our current Congress only meeting once a year? A lot of us would say, great. They And, and that would be accurate and truthful because they're doing not just too much that we don't wish they would, but so much that they actually can't according to the Constitution. And why? Because there is no power given to the federal government to actually do anything that they're trying to accomplish. So whether or not we think it's a good idea, 
our rule of law and our system of government doesn't allow that. And both parties, by the way, are guilty of this. Uh, both parties are trying to accumulate too much power to Congress and to Washington and to override our system. Now, our system, like um, any other system and complex design, and you know, if we go back to that analogy of the mission-oriented, uh, goal-oriented system, we have a lot of fail-safes. We have a lot of uh, override protection mechanisms that are built into our system. And our founders were so brilliant when they designed the system because we have a lot of these fail-safes. And one of those fail-safes is the Electoral College and this idea that power is going to be given to the state legislatures. And the reason for that uh, Hamilton actually said best in Federalist 68, and if you if you understand the purpose of the Federalist Papers, uh, this was Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, who all of whom, by the way, were lawyers. Um, that means something. They understand how the law uh, works and functions, the power of government in a civil society. And they were promoting to the people the ratification of the original design of the Constitution through the Federalist Papers. They were explaining their rationale. I mean, this is kind of in part like a legislative history of uh, the Constitutional Convention. And they were supporting the ratification of the U.S. Constitution by explaining why the system of government is designed this way and why it's the best opportunity to preserve and protect our individual freedoms and liberties. So in Federal 68, which is by Hamilton, he talks about the mode of appointment of the chief magistrate of the United States, the, the term for the, pres the president, is almost the only part of the system. And notice he uses that word system, right? So he says the mode of appointment of the chief magistrate of the United States is almost the only part of the system of any consequence which has escaped without severe censure or which has received the slightest mark of approbation from its opponents. And he goes on to say that uh, we've designed this system of election of a president to be very well guarded. And he said that I venture somewhat further and hesitate not to affirm that if the manner of it be not perfect, it's at least excellent. It unites in an eminent degree all the advantages, the union of which was to be wished for. He's saying we designed this really well. And he talks about the desires that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station of the president and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation and to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice. A small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass would be the most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated investigations. He's talking about the system of the Electoral College. And also note the small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from a general mass. Because in the original design of the Constitution, we didn't actually have a popular vote of the president like we have today. The state legislatures had set up as the manner by which they were selecting the delegates to then go to the Electoral College. That choice was made by the state legislatures. And those people, of course, were directly elected by the people in their states. And so that's the small number 
um, that were selected by the fellow citizens in order to be able to look as their job to look and investigate the qualifications of anyone who would run for the office of president. Because they understood that a chief magistrate, our chief executive officer of the United States, is a really, really important role. So Hamilton goes on to say, it was also particularly desirable to afford as little opportunity as possible to tumult and disorder. This evil was not least to be dreaded in the election of a magistrate, who was to have so important an agency in the administration of the government as the president of the United States. But precautions, which have been so happily concentrated in the system, again, that word system, under consideration, remember the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, promise and effectual security against this mischief, what? The tumult and disorder. The choice of several to form an intermediate body of electors would be much less apt to convulse the community with any extraordinarily or violent movements than the choice of one who was himself to be the final object of the public's wishes. So these are the safeguards. These are the system override precautions, right? These are the fail-safes. The Electoral College was designed specifically with this intention. So Hamilton goes on to say, as the electors chosen in each state are to assemble and vote in the state in which they're chosen, this detached and divided situation will expose them much less to the heats and ferments which might be communicated from them to the people than if they were all to be convened at one time in one place, which is our electoral college system. And he goes on to say, nothing was more important to be desired that every practicable obstacles should be opposed to cabal, intrigue, and corruption. We don't want any of that in our system. He says the most deadly adversaries of a Republican government, which we are, we're a republic, right? He's not talking about the party. He's saying the most deadly adversaries of Republican government might naturally have been expected to make their approaches from more than one quarter, but chiefly from the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant in our councils. How could they better gratify this than by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistracy of the union? But the convention has guarded against all danger of this sort with the most provident and judicious attention. So he's talking about the electoral college system. And what we found in the administration of the 2020 election is that both sides, uh, the state legislatures, had no idea the design and purpose of the government and that how this was originally set up was that the state legislatures who were directly elected by the people of their states would then select the electoral delegates. And so when you have this whole... uh, talking point and this whole you know manipulation of the narrative by the left saying oh if the states reclaimed their delegates and they actually used the system as it was intended to guard against corruption that's going to be uh you know disenfranchising all the voters and that was one of the main things that you heard the people on the left say this would be disenfranchisement this would be treason this would be you know all kinds of uh these you know malicious terms that they were using if 
the state legislatures actually used one of the fail-safes in the Constitution. And we've never had to use that before, but the design is there. Um, you know, if you look at how a car is functioning and operates, um, you know, you know that in, in cars today, we have airbags. Now, in my car, um, in my parents' car right now, in most of my friends' cars, we've never had to actually use the system of airbags, but we know that it's there. And in the one time that we might need to use that, it's going to automatically come in. Why? Because that is a protection for the user. And in the same way, the ability to reclaim delegates to the Electoral College and make sure that it is the state legislature that has the final say in selection of delegates, that is an incredibly important fail-safe. And that's what Team Trump and, you know, myself included, going and speaking to these legislators um, in committee hearings and in explaining to them the design and functionality of the Constitution. But the extreme, absolute false narrative from the left um, was trying to simply run out the clock. They knew that we had such a short time to actually get to the truth of the matter and then to get to a remedy of the matter, particularly through the judicial branch. Uh, but that's why we went specifically to the state legislatures, because the state legislature is the final guardian of making sure that corruption doesn't influence the selection of the United States president. And it was so incredibly disappointing to me as an attorney, as a constitutional law attorney, as um, as a voting member of our of our great uh, United States. Um, and as someone who has my trust in the state legislatures within each state to participate in this system as it's designed to see that they weren't willing to actually use that functionality and they weren't willing to exercise their oath of office. Now, I have to say, within each of the states, there were a lot of state legislators that do understand this, but they were in the minority, even within the Republican Party. They were in the minority. Um, the leadership of these states uh, were not willing to put themselves out there and say, we are going to follow the design of the U.S. Constitution as written, as understood without some sort of judicial cover. They wanted the Supreme Court or a federal judge or even a state-level judge to basically tell them, you have to address this. They weren't willing to, on their own, harness the power that is specifically given them in the Constitution to address election integrity issues. This is wrong. And this is something that we can see that our system has broken down in the administration of the system. Our system itself is still absolutely wonderful, but we have to get back to understanding our system as it's designed. And that is the key that the mainstream media, the liberal left, the progressives, and even frankly, some Republicans don't want you to understand. They don't want you to understand the design because they are trying their darndest to override the system so that they can get to a conclusion and an outcome that the system was designed to protect against. And that is concentration of power in Washington. That's infringement on your and my rights. That's obliteration of state sovereignty. All of these things that we talk about daily on a policy issue level we debate back and forth just those individual policies, but what we're failing to do is go back to the design of the system and say, wait a minute, hold on, Congress, hold on, Biden administration, hold on, 
uh, you know, state legislature, hold on, judicial branch. This isn't what our system is designed to do. And these aren't the powers that were given to you. This wasn't the judicial review component that our Supreme Court just absolutely absurdly refused to address. That is their obligation under Article 3, which designs and creates one Supreme Court and other inferior courts. That's the language of Article 3. They design this specifically to be the check and the balance against a runaway political branch of either the legislature or the executive. And we have to get back to this. So so when we're talking about election integrity, this isn't just complaining about what happened. This isn't just about proving a case. This isn't just about having, you know, a viral meme that says, you know, we really, really want Trump back in office. I mean, of course we do. And I'm, you know, I'm the first one to say that I voted for President Trump. I supported, I was a part of, I was a senior advisor on the 2020 campaign. And he did win. Absolutely. That is not a big lie. This is, again, the mainstream media left is trying to intimidate intimidate you and I into silence about election integrity by calling us all kinds of names that are false and saying that we're perpetuating a lie or that we're falsely claiming things when they're not at all and intentionally they're not looking at the design of the constitution and how election integrity fits into that. So what happened in in 2020? (laughs) Well um, this actually happened well before election day. So when the campaign, um, and I believe that the campaign in the RNC should have fought this even more strongly, uh, President Trump was the chief advocate of saying, you know, these laws are getting changed and manipulated in states under the pretext of the pandemic to allow for things like universal vote by mail, to um, to have the erosion of the safeguards in place, like to check for signature matching of, you know, for voter ID, for some of these things that are very important to safeguarding Um, that we don't have duplicate votes, that we don't have um, people who are not qualified to vote. And by the way, this is also not about um, people who are not legally in this country versus a lawful citizen. This is about the vote itself, whether every legal vote counts. So for example, my home state of Colorado, I'm a registered voter in Colorado, always have been. And I cast a legal vote in Colorado. Now I'm a US citizen. and I'm a resident of Colorado, if I went and tried to vote in any of the other 49 states, I would be an illegal voter, right? This has nothing to do with my citizenship. This has nothing to do with the color of my skin. This has nothing to do with, um, you know, my gender or my sex. This has nothing to do with my age. This has nothing to do with anything, right? Except for following the law and making sure that every legal vote is counted and counted accurately. I could be an illegal voter if I don't vote in the manner of which the Colorado General Assembly provides for, or if I try to vote according um, to or against the laws of any other state. This isn't about voter suppression. This is about making sure that we have in our United States of America a system of free and fair elections. That's part of our whole system of our U.S. Constitution. So what we found is that the laws in significant swing states were being manipulated either through the state legislatures who are using this pretext uh, or even worse by the governors of some of these states through executive orders. Now in our system, that's not allowed. Governors cannot change the law unilaterally by executive order. 
emergency powers don't allow that. And the state legislatures have not delegated to the governor of the state the ability to create law. Uh, That would be a violation of the separation of powers. So when you have governors like the governor of Pennsylvania who unilaterally changed election law in the state of Pennsylvania, that is on face unconstitutional. And we litigated over that. But unfortunately, the clock ran out, right? There are there are time frames just because of the necessity of uh, election day and then of the uh, inauguration of the next term of the president. Uh, there were some very critical key dates. If you look at litigation on a broad perspective, um, cases that I've litigated, you know, all the way from um, you know small misdemeanors up to you know large scale felonies. Um, even the smallest misdemeanor takes more than two months and three days to litigate. I mean, often you're not even in pretrial conference, motions hearings, all of that for six months. I've had small misdemeanor cases take, you know, a year or two to get to a jury trial. This is something that I said from the very beginning. We were working on a very, very short clock. Um, so, and, and of course the left knows this and they tried to just run out the clock and they were successful by then the Supreme Court saying, ah, well, too bad you ran out the clock and what they did a couple weeks ago by just dismissing a litany of election integrity cases by saying, hey, they're moot because the inauguration's already happened. That is ridiculous. And we, that is absolutely against the notion of justice and fairness and equity and precedent. And Justice Thomas in his dissent articulated that so well in 11 pages where he's saying, why are we leaving election law under the shroud of doubt? And we're not setting up an establishing precedent and saying, yes, states, you have to play by the rules. Um, So I think a lot of us who are so concerned about election integrity, this isn't just about Trump versus Biden. This is about our visceral reaction to saying this wasn't justice. We want justice because we understand that we, the people, are represented in our federal government by a president. And we have to have input. Now, before 1824, our input was by we the people was to select our representatives and our state legislatures, and then they would select the delegates to the Electoral College. But we could influence them by our vote and also by contacting them because, um, and hopefully everyone um, who is in this conversation with me, you know your state legislators, you have a good relationship with them, you talk to them on a regular basis, um, and you have input because that is the design of our system. And so when you have this design, then after 1824, uh, that's when the majority of states delegated their uh, election law by saying, we are going to now change this to the popular vote and allow the people by their vote to choose the slate of delegates. And that became the law. And that's also fine. That's the manner in which the state legislatures are deciding how to send their delegates. So they can do that by selecting them themselves. They can do that by participation in in a popular vote in each state. But importantly, it's according to the law of the state legislatures. And after November 3rd, what happened in at least six states uh, that we know of, and these are the states that we litigated in as Team Trump, um, which, by the way, this is a whole incredibly false talking point that Uh, We lost 62 cases. We didn't even file close to that. In the less than a dozen cases, 
that uh, Team Trump or the president in his personal capacity filed, we didn't actually lose those cases. They were never heard on the merits. That's a very, very important difference. But of course, you know, the liberal left, everybody loves on my Twitter feed. I think it's hilarious when they think that their ooh big gotcha moment is to say, hey, you lost 62 cases. And I'm like, you're not paying attention. You have no idea what you're saying. This is a completely false narrative. Um, we didn't we didn't lose that. We didn't file that many. But uh, but those cases that we did file were never even heard. And we were working on such a limited time frame. And what happened in these states is that the, the law that each of the general assemblies, the state legislatures, had set in their state, they have an election code. And the executive branch, from the secretaries of state to the election officials to even the volunteers, they have to abide by those laws, that system of election within that state, in order to get to a legislatively approved selection of delegates. And the system and the laws in each of these states were completely ignored in the administration of the elections. That's where all of this evidence that we had and we still have comes in, where we have uh, witnesses, we have affidavits, we have testimony from hundreds and hundreds of people in these six states saying in very key critical counties, the law was violated. That is absolutely against the rule of law. That is against the U.S. Constitution because Article 2, Section 1.2 specifically says that the state legislatures get to determine the manner in which electoral delegates are selected. When a state, let's just take, for example, Pennsylvania, when they say, here's our election code, the General Assembly, not the governor, gets to set that and they say, here are the rules that you need to follow how we select our delegates. When that was completely ignored, then you get to a falsely certified slate of delegates. And that's that's what we were up against. And so the remedy for that is one of two things. And we were on what I continue to call two parallel tracks, where the state legislature could have provided their own remedy. They could have said, wait a minute, we're looking at all this evidence. We've done this investigation. They could have done this easily within a couple of weeks. They could have investigated this and said, yes, this is thoroughly corrupted. We can't determine because of how much was of the law was violated in the administration of the election. We can't certify a slate. So we are going to reclaim our delegates under the U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 1.2, and we now as the state legislature are going to determine what slate of delegates to send. Now, it could have been a Biden slate. That was absolutely possible, and we all knew this uh, going into this mode of remedy. The state legislatures could have determined, okay, we're hearing from all of our constituents, we have a vote in our General Assembly, however they preferred to handle the selection of the slate of delegates, they could have sent Biden delegates, or they could have sent Trump delegates. So that uh, that was one remedy. The other remedy was to have a judicial ruling saying, yes, there is a finding on the merits, on the testimony, on the evidence, which we never got to present in any judicial forum, which is absolutely insane to me as a lawyer that we never had in one single case from the Trump campaign or the president that we never had the opportunity to present evidence in court. Insane. They were all kicked out saying, you know, you don't have this this uh, this legal principle called standing, which is basically you can't as the Trump campaign bring this claim. Well, if the candidate for office 
can't allege that the system was corrupted. Who has standing then? Well, the 18 attorneys general uh, that was led by the state of Texas also tried and said, hey, our states are participating in this process called the Electoral College. The design was that all the states would come together and would select the chief executive of the United States of America, of the union. And because at least six states are alleged to have violated the rules in such an egregious way that their elections have been thoroughly corrupted, that is outcome determinative because the delegates to those states, if you subtract those from both sides, from just the total of electoral delegates, then nobody gets to 270. So of course this was outcome determinative. So that was the allegation in the Texas versus Pennsylvania lawsuit that was filed in the U.S. Supreme Court that should have been heard not only for justice and fairness and equity reasons, but also because we have this concept of original jurisdiction. And of course, Texas and the other 17 states had standing because they were participants and affected by the Electoral College outcome. And their claim should have been heard on original jurisdiction that if a state sues another state, it makes sense in our system that you don't want to have forum selection. You don't want to have bias by having any other state level judge or you know, in, in the federal system. But, you know, in the, the U.S. District of Pennsylvania, for example, if they're the one filing the suit, it wouldn't be fair to then have uh, you know Pennsylvania have to litigate in in uh, the federal court of Texas because you would obviously think that there could be some bias there or at least an appearance of bias. So when we designed this system to have original jurisdiction cases be only heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, it was for the purpose, one, one of several, that a state suing another state over a federal issue had to be heard by an independent impartial panel. And that's the U.S. Supreme Court. So on this idea of original jurisdiction, meaning Texas was suing Pennsylvania and then other states got involved, that had to be heard at the Supreme Court. The fact that only two justices recognized that is appalling. You should be shocked and appalled by that. And that was kicked out and with no reason. And our Supreme Court was not operating according to their oath of office and according to the power of judicial review that is given to the one Supreme Court and all other inferior courts under Article 3, original jurisdiction that should have been heard. And so the second form of remedy that should have happened uh, because the Constitution requires it is that the claims of corruption in these six states would have been heard on the merits, and then the judicial branch, uh, probably from the Supreme Court, would have then required those six states in their general assemblies to go back to Article 2, Section 1.2, and say, state legislatures, we are going to now convene and determine how are we going to send our delegates, how are we going to select them. And that would have then been a judicial order. And that would have forced these really lamely led states in their general assemblies to have to force the question. When the Texas versus Pennsylvania suit got kicked, um, knowing that these states, their leadership and even their Republican majorities 
were too weak and were caving to the public pressure and the mainstream media's lies, they were unwilling to do it themselves. They should have been. But then when it became apparent with the dismissal of the Texas versus Pennsylvania suit, it was it was basically done at that point. Um, and it was so infuriating uh, to me and every person who genuinely understands the role of the state legislatures and the design of our system of government and rule of law. Um, so then, of course, we were in this um, kind of odd uh, era of, you know, just for um, a couple of weeks before January 6th. And of course, what happened at the state capitol was absolutely horrible, reprehensible, and should be thoroughly, thoroughly condemned. Um, I was not present January 6th, but I was watching on TV and was absolutely shocked and appalled and horrified um, like everyone else. That should never happen. And I personally don't even understand what the point of that was because um, that is not a way that you can overthrow the uh, U.S. system of government. Um, our system is our U.S. Constitution, and there is no mechanism to overhaul our system we only have a very difficult, purposefully difficult process to amend our Constitution in order to redistribute powers or to secure, intentionally secure more rights against um, infringement in ways if the government is over abusing their powers um, and those types of things. So what happened on January 6th was, was absolutely reprehensible. But uh, there were these theories, of course, like the Pence card and some other things that came out. Uh, before January 6th. And no, Vice President Mike Pence at, at the time did not have the constitutional authority to simply decline Biden slates of delegates and select his own. No. Now, Trump delegates were sent by, um, by the states, and that was also another legal question because they weren't actually certified by their, uh, by their states. However, um, the delegates of Trump did cast their vote just to preserve this issue, right, which was a great thing. And so when you have two competing slates of delegates in front of the vice president, he can't just pick whichever one he wants. Well, why? Because then the vice president, whoever's currently sitting in that seat, would then just be able to select uh, unilaterally who the next president is. Of course, that's completely antithetical to our design. But what he did have the authority to do and what I was very much advocating um, on, you know, mainstream media, on, um, you know, just throughout uh, my voice in all of this. Um, and what I advocated uh, to President Trump as well was that uh, the vice president, you know, regardless of who it is, this is always true, the vice president under um, three USC code and, and the, you know, the code that governs how the Electoral College actually meets and how Congress accepts the certification from the states is that when there is a question about the certification and when you have not yet had a final adjudication, because um, the United States Code Section 3 actually contemplates that there may be election integrity uh, related litigation. So it talks about uh, specifically saying that there has to be a final adjudication. And obviously, there had not been a final adjudication on um, several of our lawsuits. There were still ongoing in Pennsylvania and Arizona um, and others. And so what Vice President Pence could have done was to simply say, when it got to you know the first in alphabetical order, Arizona, simply said, 
there has not been a final adjudication. So while this appears to be a certification, I don't know that, and neither does anyone else. And so posed the question back to the state legislature, is this a valid, legally valid certification? And the state legislature then would have had to answer that question. Now, they could have said yes, and we don't want anything to do with this, but fine. The state legislature, as the sole vested authority under the U.S. Constitution, would have spoken. And then they would have been accountable to their constituents, right? So that, in my view, is the constitutional argument of what Vice President Pence can and, in my view, should have done, is to simply pose the question back to the state legislatures and give them a time frame because from January 6th to January 20th, there was certainly enough time for the state legislatures to convene to answer that question and either say, uh, yes, go ahead with the certification. They could have said, no, that's the improper certification. We are choosing to send this slate of delegates. Uh, they have the constitutional authority to do that. Or they could have said, you know, we don't have a remedy. And so, no, uh, there are no competently certified delegates from our state and simply declined to participate in the electoral process. Now, what would that have done if, for example, all six states had said, we don't have a, a legal certification that we can, as the state legislature, uh, expressly say is competently certified according to the laws in our states. We're still doing our investigation, and that's still going to take some time. Well, then if all six states had had basically declined to participate, had not authenticated those certifications, then both candidates, both Trump and Biden, would have fell below the requisite 270 delegate count. And then, again, one of our brilliant fail-safes and our security mechanisms is the Constitution, in the Constitution is to then uh, utilize the provision which says that then Congress voting by state delegation. Again, this is all about state sovereignty and making sure states have a voice in the selection of our president. They would have then voted by state delegation in only the House of Representatives to then select the president. And that's happened before. And that's not disenfranchisement of voters. That's utilizing the system against corruption, against influence, against, you know, all of these different ways that elections can be corrupted. This would have been utilizing the Constitution as it was intended with the mode in which we select a chief magistrate and a president of the United States. So the the big picture and the takeaway that, that I want you to have with this is that our Constitution provides everything that we need to ensure election integrity. So moving forward, no, we are not going to advocate, I'm not going to advocate for anything that is against the Constitution or is against the purpose and the design of the Constitution. That includes the Insurrection Act, that includes the Pence Card Theory, that includes a lot of other things and a lot of other theories and frankly conspiracy theories that other people who are not specifically representing the president or Team Trump uh, still float out there. That is nothing that any genuine conservative should be advocating for because we are constitutionalists. We, we should understand that the design and mission-oriented goal of our beautiful system of the U.S. Constitution is designed specifically to preserve and protect our, our individual unalienable rights. And within that system, we have a wonderful way of selecting 
our chief magistrate, our president. That's through the Electoral College. Absolutely, the, the Electoral College system shouldn't be abolished. But why are there people advocating for that? Because they're selling you a false lie that you're getting disenfranchised or there's voter suppression or this is about racism or any other kind of ism, right? And they are hoping that you don't understand the reason and the rationale and the design of this very complex but actually kind of simple system. They're hoping that they can overhaul it, they can change it, so that they can take advantage of exactly what our Constitution was designed to protect against. And so moving forward with election integrity, even though I completely understand everyone who daily contacts me and says, I am so frustrated with this, I feel like just giving up, I don't even want to vote. Well, no, um, we have to still participate in our system. But I understand where you're coming from and I share your frustration and the absolute sense of injustice because that's what happened in 2020. It was a totally unjust, unfair system um, that of how it operated because it was not according to our actual system of justice, our actual system of the Constitution. And what we need to do moving forward, um, even though the... the Everything that should not have happened happened in the administration of the 2020 election, in the judicial branch's review and lack of review, and then also the weakness and total failure of these state legislatures. Basically, every single fail-safe, the people in authority to actually exercise that fail-safe, it's not you and me. It's the elected officials in the state legislatures. They failed. The judicial branch failed. They are the only ones in authority. Utterly failed. So that sucks. I completely agree with you. It is unjust. It is infuriating. But moving forward, we have to look forward to saying, okay, how can we bolster these fail-safes to make sure that the administration of the 20? 22 and 2024 and all future elections doesn't happen in this way because I I still reiterate what I said in front of the Michigan state legislature that no reasonable person can look at what happened in 2020 and think that those false certifications should have been counted we should all just go on our merry way no do not allow the mainstream media the liberal leftists to intimidate you into silence to call you falsely a treasoner or an insurrectionist or any of these other things because of the horrendous things that happened on january 6th that's not what we're advocating for that's n- none of that is appropriate but don't let them falsely call you names and intimidate you into silence so that you back down from the genuine truthful issues of election integrity because those things absolutely have to be taken care of and we have to put back in these fail safes into our design and our system before 2022 and especially before 2024 uh, with election integrity because if we don't have free and fair elections and this type of corruption is allowed to reign again in the next election then we've lost a key component of our system and of our design of government and so then every abuse of power is going to happen because we the people are no longer self-governing and also selecting and preferring who we have in office we are then just completely at the mercy 
of all of this corruption. So we have to go back into these states. We have to lobby for the state legislatures to actually do their job, be the ones that are in authority and presiding over their elections. They have to put back in these uh, these safeguards to make sure that every legal vote is counted and is counted fairly. But this doesn't come from Congress. Congress has nothing to do with presidential elections or state and local elections. The only thing that they do have ability to do, again, this is still up to the state legislature to design election law, but Congress with only the elections of Congress members, of representatives and senators, they have some constitutional authority there. But that's it. And that's only because it directly affects them. They have absolutely no constitutional role or power in the selection of our president or state and local elections or anything that the state general assemblies do for election law. Now, of course, there are some uh, ways that those laws have to be designed and they can't run afoul of, you know, other protections and genuine disenfranchisement. But these safeguards and these security measures have to be put in. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So the thing that you and I need to do, and what I'm committed to do uh, before 2022, is to first not back down not be intimidated, continue to talk about election integrity, continue to truthfully advocate for the design of our system, to tell Congress on HR1, no, you have no power, you have no authority, um, and to participate meaningfully by recalling um, some of these uh, state legislators who were just absolutely despicable in the administration of their elections and the lack of taking authority. Um, We have to recall any of these... uh, executive branch officials that actually violated the law. We have to continue looking at what happened. We have to uh, make sure that we are lobbying the states uh, to put back in legislation these safeguards, and we have to move forward. Now, um, we may never get genuine justice for the 2020 election, but we have to move forward at this point, making sure that it never, ever, ever happens again. And uh, so I really appreciate this conversation, this opportunity to talk with you about the design of our system. There's even more than this. There's so much more we can say about this. But go back to the U.S. Constitution, learn the design of the Constitution, learn about our system of government, why it's in place, because then you will be a better advocate to go out there and say, no, 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 that's not the design of our system. We are a mission-oriented country to where we preserve and protect our individual rights and liberties. We have free and fair elections in this country, and I'm going to show you chapter and verse why. We have to do that. 
I'm Jenna Ellis, and this has been Just the Truth.